Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. This is the covenant I will make. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. God is taking no chances with his people. They've already broken the covenant he made with them when he led them out of Egypt. Now he's leaving nothing to chance. He says he won't let them teach one another about him or tell each other to know the Lord. For he is going to make sure they already know him from the least to the greatest. Through Jeremiah, he says he will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is prophetic, of course. Jeremiah was a major prophet. This is God telling of the sending of his son to die and blot out all our sins, past, present and future. The new covenant is Jesus telling his disciples, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will do it in remembrance of me. His death, his body, his blood becomes the writing on our hearts. You've heard we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. The niggle that says there's something missing. This new covenant ensures that we all know, without being told, that God is there through Christ. We know that, as Josh McDowell says, the three main causes for the rejection of Christ are pride, moral problems and ignorance. Are you God's person? for he is your God. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNinney. My guest this week is my daughter, Paris McNinney. She'll be talking to us about her Africa experience and all things children, so stay signed on. Other topics of interest this week are taxes, good American food and my book excerpts, so settle yourself down with a strong cup of builder's tea and sturdy dunking biscuits, and I'll get started. Even though we're in England, we sadly had to tackle our income taxes, which we reluctantly began to do at the beginning of last week. Happily, I can now report that we finished them and sent them in to be scanned and analysed. Hopefully they won't do too much of that this year, since we sent them a healthy cheque too. When we return home, I'm going to join the rest of my family and file online. The children do theirs this way, and it's so much easier, especially if they have an account from the previous year. Clever Texan brought all our paper records from last year with us, so I was able to work off a template of sorts. We always do something really complicated with our income or our business, which I know has a solution in the written instructions. I taught our children that the answer was always in the written word, and to read the instructions carefully. This became especially true with the higher grades of Saxon math, which needed several diligent readings. Sometimes I think the IRS forms are written in a cunning code that look harmless and straightforward enough that end up at a dead end in some instances, veering off the beaten track. I'm the one who deciphers the code. I try to read between the lines. I try to get into the compiler's head. But as I read the steps line by line, sometimes I have no idea where the form preparer is taking me. 
I have to plug in arbitrary numbers dependent on filing status, then divide by percentages, determine which lines are more than others, divide some lines by others, subtract, and if less than zero, enter zero. Then I am sent back to the main 1040 tax page and told to enter my result on a particular line. The print is getting finer too, have you noticed? Or can you zoom in on your computer screen? Well, it's over for now, thank God, and I survived. Perhaps the compilers are wannabe computer programmers or video gamers. Staying briefly on the topic of computer screens, while my filmmaking son was in Austin at South by Southwest, he began reading the second part of the trilogy, The Hunger Games, on his iPhone. That's small. He told me he knew which chapter he was on but had no idea of the page. Did that really matter? I would have been fretting about having to zoom in so far. All I could see were two words at a time on the screen. Well, it's time for my book excerpt from Where the Wild Things Go. We have the squirrels in the chimney, remember, and have worked out a way to get them all safely on the ground before we block all access. We had to get them safely out of the chimney, all of them. Otherwise, decomposition would surely begin and we didn't want our house smelling of death. Simon had come up with the idea of a two-by-four plank slung from the eaves ending on the lawn outside our living room window. In order for that plan to work, the other escape routes had to be blocked so we could monitor the comings and goings from one vantage point. Our handyman wildflower principal managed this simple engineering feat with wire mesh and expanding foam sealant. How brilliant was that? We spent a pleasant few days watching Mum, was it Hazelnut? run along the plank as if she were on a boat, reaching the ground in safety before turning around and waiting patiently while her toddlers teetered down the escape board after her. When a leaf blowing in the wind startled them, they'd turn and bolt back to the safety of the eaves. We took turns to monitor the comings and goings of the family as we realised the evacuation process may be a slow one. Sometimes all the babies would make it out, but not always to the ground. And they were skittish. There was invariably a straggler, one who was a little more timid than the rest, bringing up the rear. For my children, this was really an exercise in patience, silence and stillness. Good lessons for young people to learn. When we were certain all the offspring were out, Simon removed the plank and left the eave cover off for 24 hours in case our trusty dog heard the telltale scrabbling of a stranded kit. Silence sounded the all clear, and we battened down the hatches and sealed the holes to foil any plans for returning the following season. I'm telling you, Try as we may, they proved dogged in their persistence. Their teeth and nails must be super resistant. Year after year, the squirrels continue to show up, having chewed their way through wire mesh of varying densities, not to mention the expanding foam and other harmless but supposedly effective repellents. I suspect not even barbed wire would prevail against the determination of pecan and hazelnut's extended family to get back to their roots for nesting season. This innate instinct reaching through the generations to return year after year to their safe house has become a homeschool self-perpetuating project. With the emerging of the first daffodil, out comes the two-by-four, off comes the ventilation cover in the eaves, and we're in monitoring mode again. And here we are in our 13th year, looking towards the future. The, year, the end was in sight, and I wondered where all the years had gone as we started to map out the final course for our Wildflower Academy's journey. Simon was now full-time at Collin College. He'd successfully graduated from high school, and his dual credits had been transcripted, giving him an impressive 40-some-odd hours of credits towards the 60 he needed to complete his Associates of Science. 
and transfer to a four-year school. He had applied to enter as a junior at Texas A&M. Paris was nearing her 17th birthday and looking at mercy ships, and Malia was fully invested in her ballet school's senior company. However, for the immediate future, noting the success of our squirrel breed and release program, the shelter called me one day with a request. We have a couple of orphaned raccoons who need a mama. The cat we put them with has several stray kittens in addition to her own litter. Could you take them? They haven't opened their eyes yet. These smaller cousins of the bear family enrolled in our newly named Wild Animal Academy and proved themselves to be more fun than any other animal I've ever met. They were delightful, affectionate, independent and snuggly. They were intelligent and curious and followed their surrogate mum everywhere. They licked, purred, made contented grunts, snored and latched on to fingers for comfort. From being completely helpless, they ended up being able to hold their own bottles and took the mandatory washing of hands before meals our children had grown up with, one step further by also washing their food before eating. The requirements for humans to raise raccoons are a little more rigorous than other wild animals. Any kind of contact is strongly discouraged, which is impossible given their gregarious and sociable nature. Where possible, they have to be raised in pairs or more, so they can rough and tumble with their own kind, although they'll make do with us lesser humans. When they reach 16 weeks of age, they have to go to a rehabilitation centre, where they're gradually released into the wild. The girls once again voiced their concerns about getting along on their own in the wild, having grown used to the safety and comfort of couch and bed, carpet and food on demand. Paris took it upon herself to look up the social habits of wild raccoons and found to her relief that in their natural habitat when an adult raccoon sees a baby ambling towards him and they do amble, hips swaying from side to side like a thurible at a high mass. He thinks, ah, baby's mum can't be too far away. Be nice, otherwise trouble for me just around the corner. So translated Paris when she'd shared her information with us. Hand-reared young raccoons can butt into a feeding frenzy at a rubbish bin and the adults defer to them and stand back to watch. Ooh, nothing like a human household, says Malia, where children have to respect their elders and let them go first. Good observation there. Raccoons naturally love water and unlike the snake, who would make us shudder if we saw one swimming towards us, the children encourage Rachmaninoff and his playmate Remy, our first masked bandits, to join them in the pool for their customary dips. They treated Paris like their mum and clambered onto her head when they needed a quick breather. After about ten weeks of gentle nurturing, our little raccoons had to leave us. The separation was difficult because by then they'd become part of the family. We discovered there were no boundaries for a raccoon. They absolutely insisted on being treated as a member of the family. Their oppositional thumbs meant they could manipulate a spoon, examine a sugar cube, hold a cup and peel a banana to the entertainment of all who visited our house. Their ability to hang upside down from our outstretched hands and fall asleep was funny. They responded to our voices and followed us around everywhere, especially outside where they spent a lot of their time with us. An electrician came to the house one day and saw them asleep in their cage. I was always a little hesitant as to the reaction we'd get when folks discovered we harboured what a lot of people thought of as pesky coons. He told us a story of how his family raised a coon until he was 14 years old. He used to sit at the dinner table with them. There, it's not only homeschooling families who are mad... How are our domestic pets faring in this liberal environment? The dog didn't care, but the small raccoons would puff up to double their size and go in for the attack, burying their teeth into the fur on poor Watson's back to his complete dismay. 
The cats retreated to the safety of a bedroom and hissed loudly if they came face to face with a squirrel or a raccoon, despite the fact that they were young. No deferment between the species here. As we handed back our miniature bears and the domestic pets breathed a sigh of relief, we prepared to attend our oldest son's graduation from college and his imminent return home. We were soon to become a household where a degreed person was on the look out for a job. My guest this week is my school teacher daughter, Paris McNenny, who has never been on my show before as the only guest, a fact she noticed when she heard her brother, the zookeeper, featured a few weeks ago. In the midst of moving apartments yet again, she's found time to rectify that omission this afternoon during her lunch break. Paris holds the title of firstborn daughter and takes after me in her colouring and beauty and after her father in his lovingness and sense of humour. She graduated top of her homeschool senior year and spent her first year away from home on a ship. She has always had an affiliation for children and on her return to America, she went to college to get her Associate of Arts degree in education and a certificate for teaching special needs children. She currently lives in Corpus Christi near the water, although she dislikes the feel of sand between her toes and works to support her studies at the local community college. So we will be welcoming and talking to Paris after this break, so go get yourself a nice hot cup of tea and come right back. How do you handle toddlers, teens and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Well, Paris, we're back from our break now, and I'm thrilled to have you with me. Hi, Mom. I'm glad to be here, too. Good, good. Now, in my introduction, I said something about after you had graduated top of your class from your home school, that you went and spent some time. Um, in Africa, as a missionary, I didn't actually say where you were where you were doing your work, so you can say that, and um, exactly where you were in Africa. So tell us, tell us that. I worked for an organization called Mercy Ships, which um, brought hope and healing to the forgotten poor, and we would do lots of different things. We had surgeries that we would bring um, locals onto the ship and just do basic medical needs that they couldn't get there you know Mm -hmm. something that might seem really simple here in america is impossible over there so we 
made it possible. Um, and then I, we were based on the coast of uh, Liberia, West Africa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the we were, Mercy Ship was a, um, a floating hospital. Yes, we, uh, me and my roommates would actually joke that it was like uh, living on a cruise ship, but then you looked outside the window and you remembered that you were in this poor third world country, but you felt like you were living on a cruise ship in like, Mm -hmm. you know, the Bahamas or something like that, because we we literally had everything probably that a cruise ship had. Yeah. Well, you had, you had running water, which the locals outside wouldn't have had, and you had air conditioning when it got too hot, which they definitely didn't have, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we had a Starbucks. You had a Starbucks. You had regular food cooked for you. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, well, um, you love children, and I know on the ship you did some work with the children. It wasn't actually your official work, but you um, did work because there were families on board the ship. So, tell us a little bit about what you did with the families. Um, Well, right away, um, I started work and working in reception. I had to learn a lot of. A lot of the crew members, not all of them, because there were a lot of us, but right away I would learn kind of a lot of the names and stuff like that. And my boss actually had three kids of his own. Mm -hmm. So I, of course, started getting to know the family and the kids and going outside and playing with them at night. And Mm -hmm. every night after dinner, all the families would meet at the bottom of the dock and all the kids would run around and we would all just watch the sunset or... Um, the boats leaving or just random stuff like that. And so immediately for my first or second day, I found the kids. And, of course, I started playing with them. Like, I always gravitated towards the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I started doing that right away. And eventually they started asking me to babysit. Mm-hmm. So I would start babysitting. I babysat for a couple of the families. Mm-hmm. But not only did I do the crew members' kids, uh I would go down to the hospital ward and see the kids there and stuff like that. Within like my first week, I had my own patient mm-hmm. that I would go visit, and it was a lot of fun. It yeah, was, yeah. Well, that, that's great. I, so you had children actually in the hospital wards there? Yes, we did. We took all ages. We had babies. We had, you know, little kids all the way up into, you know, older grandparents. And, mm-hmm. you know, we took all ages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the, so the wards were mixed ages too, or did you just have a particular children's ward? Um, there were particular children's wards, and then um, it got older, but um, it also went by uh, severity. So, mm-hmm. like, if somebody wouldn't be there as long, then he would be in a different ward to somebody that was, longer. you know, going to be there longer and needed more care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, when you when you got off the ship, I presume that you would get off the ship, otherwise you'd get cabin fever in the real yes. sense of the word, right? <laughs> yes. Ship, what kind of what kind of things did you do off the ship? Um, we would do anything. A lot of the times we would we were advised not to go off the ship, like outside our gates by ourselves because it wasn't very safe. Mm-hmm. So the first time I went out, it was just to go out to dinner. Um, but as I got more comfortable, there were groups of us that would go to, you know, museums or not so much museums like we see them here, but, um, I guess museums to them are what have been like certain buildings that were now destroyed by the war. And we would go and just see them or we would just go to the beach or, um, one of my favorite things to do was go to these mines 
that um, had now been totally destroyed from the war and stuff like that. And it had a big, like, pond that you can go swimming in. But it was about a three-hour train ride. Oh, I remember Uh, you telling me about those. They were called, what were they called? The bong mines. The bong mines, that's right. And I can remember you sending me photographs of the train. Yeah, and it wasn't like a train like we have here where you would, you know, or y'all have there in London where you would sit inside on a little comfy seat. No, it's like a flatbed. Yeah. And you pull your Land Rover on top because we all had Land Rovers. Mm -hmm. And you could sit outside on top of your Land Rover on the train Uh going through the jungle. Oh, wow. And you could see, if it wasn't during the rainy season, you could see, like, the animals, like monkeys and giraffes, and, like, all of, or not giraffes, but, like, all kinds of animals. But a lot of the times when I went, it was always raining or really cloudy or something like that, so I never really got the opportunity Mm -hmm. to see that. But I, um, some of my friends would tell me how you could see some animals sometimes going through, because you would literally be driving through the jungle. Yeah, yeah. And then when you got to the bong mines and you went swimming, what was the water like? Um, a lot of the times it was really cold, mm-hmm. and they said that there were parasites in it, but it never really stopped us because mm-hmm. Liberia is extremely hot, mm-hmm. and there's not a whole lot of places that you can go swimming. Mm-hmm. So we all just went and did it anyway. Yeah. And they had these huge like cliffs that you could climb up. I never did this because I was too scared. But they had the really high cliffs, and you could just jump off them into the water. Mm-hmm. And there were always the guys that would try to do the flips or see who could do the most flips or yeah. coolest trick or something yeah. like that. And we would just make a day out of it, and then we would meet back on the train and get back and yeah. do it again the next weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And you, so. I think you used to take a picnic. Used to take food. Yeah, we would always take a picnic and yeah. just eat there or eat on the hood of the the Land Rover on the train or something like that. So it was a lot of fun. The only unfun part about it was having to be at the train station at like five o'clock in the morning. Oh yeah, to get there. Yeah. And then watching them put together our train track. Oh right. <laughs> I remember yeah. you telling me that. Yeah. So we would be sitting there and they would be building our train track to get us started. Oh. And I can remember thinking, like, uh, are we going to get stuck in the middle of nowhere? And, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you see these big guys with machetes, like, cutting down, like, the bushes so we can get through and oh, stuff like that. And it's kind of huh. scary at first. <laughs> well, and there was something else that you used to do. You used to go and visit um, a place with um, some of your, I suppose, some of the staff from the Mercy Ships. Where where did you go? Um, we would always go every Saturday. We would go to an orphanage, mm-hmm. and there were several different ones that you could go to. And like you would sign up, and then you would meet at a certain time. And there would be a group of us going, and it was always a lot of fun. And I can I only went to one orphanage or two, but I found one that I really liked going to, and I got attached to a lot of the kids there. Mm-hmm. And they would meet us because they knew that we were coming every Saturday. We would always be there by like nine nine thirty. So they would meet us at the bottom of their gate Mm -hmm. and they would see us coming and they would run and meet us. And then they would run all the way back with us screaming, mercy ship, mercy (laughs) ship. And it would be the cutest thing. And so they would all be waiting there when we left or when we got there. And then Mm -hmm. when we left, there was always tears in their eyes and they would run all the way back down to the bottom of the gate with us and wave us off. But they did that every Saturday. And I know they used to cook for you, but you used to have to take them food. Oh, yes, we would always stop and we would buy 
the first time I went, we stopped and bought rice mm-hmm. and pig's feet. Yeah. And I can remember thinking, I am not going to try these pig's feet. <laughs> but it's considered very rude if they offer you something and you don't eat it. Mm. Especially if you're at like their house, like their orphanage or something like that, and an elder has cooked it for you. Yeah. And so... Um, we were all playing with the kids, and they all got called in, and the food was ready, and I get handed this bowl, and it's got the pig trotters in it, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. So I ate it, and it tasted just like bacon. Oh, it did? But every Saturday, we'd always stop, and only that one Saturday, we bought the pig trotters, but usually we'd stop and buy uh, them a big bag of rice or two bags of rice or beans or something, mm-hmm. and it would last them the whole week. Yeah, yeah. And then we would go, and we would buy them, you know, more for the next week. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what they would live on is they might get other stuff from um, other places, but there wasn't a lot of, like, the government really didn't help them out a lot with sending them food or money to buy food or whatnot. And so these these children obviously were orphans, and what was what was the main reason why they were orphans there? A lot of the children are in there because during... Um, this, there was a huge civil war that lasted 14 years, mm. and it had only been over about three years when I got there. Mm. And so a lot of the orphans that were in there were because either their parents fought in the war and they passed away or were killed, mm-hmm. or they became prisoners and they haven't made it home yet. Because yeah. mm. what happened was a lot of like, the librarians got taken over to Sierra Leone. Mm. And so they just haven't, either they haven't made it back yet, so the kids were having to be put in the orphanage, Mm -hmm. or they were actually fighting in the war and didn't make it, and so the kids are in the orphanage. And quite quite an age range from what I can remember of the photographs, because you had little ones right up to teenagers, didn't you? Oh, yeah, they stay, we had babies, and then they stay there until they're 18. And then once they turn 18, as long as they... um, are still considered pure, like they haven't done anything with a guy yet, they have the option to stay. Yeah. Or they can, um, but they have to work. Mm -hmm. They have to go find a job. Mm -hmm. Or they can get married. Yeah. But if they haven't, like if they've already had a boyfriend or they've done other things with men, then they get kicked out at 18 and they can't stay anymore. Uh, So they have to go and fend for themselves. Yes. Yes. So... Yeah, well, that's interesting, and we're we're talking about an orphanage in West Africa. We're not talking about um, uh, an American orphanage, and I can remember seeing pictures, and really, it could hardly even be called a building, (laughs) could it? Yeah, it's not. It's kind of just like, I don't even know how you would describe it. Just the, well, I know they had the, there were walls, but it was just like... There were walls, but it was, and they slept on the floor. It was just kind of like cots. They didn't have beds, and they definitely didn't have their own bedrooms, it was separated from boys from girls, mm-hmm. but it was probably all the girls were sleeping all in the same place and all the boys were sleeping all in the same place. Okay. So you didn't have, you definitely didn't have your own space. No, no. But it was, it was well, so there was a little bit of space outside, I think, but I mean, that's not quite the same, you know, go outside no. under a tree, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're getting ready to go on a break. Uh, for those of you just joining us, I'm talking to my daughter. Paris McNenny and um, at the moment we're taking a trip down memory lane and we're talking about her her um, time that she spent as a missionary on the mercy ships 
in West Africa. Um, when we come back, we're going to be talking about um, a particular young um, lady that she met on the ship. And then hopefully we'll be talking a little bit about her experience as a teacher in America. So don't go far. Come back in just a few moments with another cup of tea. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Why do I feel so lousy? Why are my medications working? Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on Tuggynet.com. The author of the book, Help, My Body is Killing Me, Solving the Connections of Autoimmune Disease to Thyroid Problems, Fibromyalgia, Depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better, to make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live, Monday nights at 9, 10 Central, here on Togginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Okay, we're back. And Paris, I'm going to ask you to tell us about Esther. Esther became a very special part of my trip in Africa. Um, I didn't meet her probably. I had already been there a good month or so. And... I had been asked to go on a prayer walk one night, and we had a lot of hard times on the ship. We had had a couple of patients pass away, and so a group of us decided to go on this prayer walk just throughout the whole ship, all the eight decks and through the hospital. And I wasn't really wanting to go this night, but something was telling me that I should go. And so I ended up going, and we got down to the hospital level, and I saw this little girl in the hallway crunched up in a ball. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of walked past her and I was looking at her and I could tell that she was crying. And then when I walked back, she kind of reached out and had me stop. And so I sat down and she asked me if I would pray for her. And um, she could have been more than probably eight or nine years old, maybe. And, uh, I started praying with her and she said a little bit of some stuff and she just kept hugging me and hugging me and she's crying. And, um, after, after just sitting with her for a couple of minutes, my group had told me it was time to go. And she asked if I would come see her again tomorrow because she didn't have any family that was coming to visit her. She was there by herself and she had already been on the ship for about five months already. Yeah. And um, she's very stubborn, I found out later. She's a very stubborn patient. Mm -hmm. And um, so I told her yes. And the next day I ended up having to work later than I had thought. 
And I can remember thinking, oh, this little girl's going to think I stood her up and that I'm not going to come see her. And because past a certain time, we weren't allowed to go down to the hospital deck. Mm -hmm. And by the time I had gotten off of work, it was too late to go. And so I can remember going back to my room and grabbing my iPod. And I went up to the very top um, where we could see. Actually, it was kind of outside. So we could get some fresh air and look out on the water. Mm -hmm. And um, she, I get up there and I see a nurse up there. And I went over to talk to the nurse, and there's Esther sitting beside her. Mm-hmm. And she was eating pizza. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget this, because this is the one thing that I thought was the cutest thing, and it's the thing that sticks out the most when I think about Esther, is not only did she have the pizza, but she had M&Ms on top of her pizza. Oh, no. <laughs> and I can remember asking her, I was like, Esther, why did you put the M&Ms on top of your pizza? And she says, just in case I don't have enough room for dessert, this way I'm getting both. Yeah. And it was just the cutest little thing ever. And so I got to spend like 15 minutes with her before she had to go back down and go to bed. Mm -hmm. But that poor little girl. What was she? Tell me what she was in for. She, um, during the war, she was, uh, her village got invaded. And she got taken away from her mom. And she was thrown, um, thrown across like the land, and her hand had landed in a fire. Oh. And so her whole hand and some of her arm had been burnt mm-hmm. so bad that her arm was like shriveled up, and it was completely bent, and she couldn't straighten it. Mm-hmm. And so we had brought her on to the ship to do a surgery so that she could straighten her hand and be able to use it. Mm-hmm. But it was only supposed to be like a month surgery, you know, just kind of an in and out kind of thing. And she ended up having to have, I can't remember how many surgeries, but more than just the one. Mm -hmm. And she was there. She got there in about May and she was there till probably, I think, like October. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And and I know you went you went to see her a lot. And I know we've got some photographs of her poor little hand. She she eventually was able to move it, wasn't she? Yeah, she was eventually able to move it, and they were teaching her how to write mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And she was considered the ship's, ship's royalty. Yeah. And um, you found out her age, too. How old was she? She, I sadly, I can't really remember. I want to say she was about 10. Mm-hmm. So, sadly, I really can't remember. But, but she was so tiny, wasn't she? She was very tiny. Like, you wouldn't have guessed her age. Mm. And I have pictures of her um, sitting, and I, take, I took pictures of her hands, and you can see the hand that we did surgery on and then the hand mm. that was not burnt. Mm. And you can hardly tell the difference. Like, you, I mean, you can see the scars. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you would have never known that. It was so badly performed before. Yeah, and she was the happiest little girl that you would have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Except for when you had to tell her, you know, you have to have another surgery or you won't yeah. be going home. Yeah. yeah. But besides that, she she would always be the one to put a smile on your face. Yeah. And it should have been the other way around, yeah. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so you spent you spent time there in Africa. And when you came back to America, you went on to college and got your associates in education so that you could teach. Now, can you remember the first school that you taught in? 
the first school I taught in was an after school program called it was a magnet school, mm-hmm. but it was just like an after school. So I taught a little bit, but not like lessons or mm-hmm. math or anything mm-hmm. kind of like that. So you helped so the with homework. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. But the first, my first actual experience with teaching, teaching was in a Montessori school. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was challenging at times because our youngest kids were um, two. Yeah, in your classroom. So it was kind of a bit frustrating for me at times when a two-year-old wanted to have Play-Doh and just play with it. And we had to teach him how to use it as a like a lesson story. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So um, what do you think about that? I mean, should children under the age of five or six actually be taught formal lessons or should they be allowed to play um i'm a big fan of playing yeah but i think there's a way of playing and teaching Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like my big motto with my kids Mm -hmm. no matter what age group it is when i'm at work because i have all the different age groups Mm -hmm. is i make it fun yeah like we can take them outside and have them run around and they're learning fine motor movement because they're learning how their feet work and their legs work and how to jump and play hopscotch and all of that. So they're still learning, but it's not sitting down at a table doing worksheets or, you know, whatever they have to do nowadays in the schools. So So, I'm a fan. I'm sorry. No, carry on. You're a fan of playing, but you're also a a fan of, learning and teaching but I think there's certain ways to do it and certain ways not to do it right so um when you're when you're interacting with these children I know you've worked in a Montessori school and you've worked in um another school where maybe the the demographic of the children and their parents is a little bit different to the Montessori school so can you Mm -hmm. tell by um just um interacting with your children um how many of them or who um, has a lot of um, stimulus at home, you know, spoken to a lot or read to a lot. Can you tell in your classroom those children? Almost definitely. Um, even kids in my certain class, like I can tell I have them and they're the same age. Mm-hmm. And um, at work right now, there's one child who is excelling way beyond his age limit. Like he's starting to write his name. He knows his alphabet. He knows how to do this and that. Mm -hmm. And then I have like two or three others that don't even know the alphabet. Mm -hmm. So I definitely. How old are these? Two year olds, two and three year olds? Yeah, they're two, three. Mm -hmm. And um, the ones that don't actually know their alphabet are older than this one that is excelling past his his age. So I can definitely tell that his parents will sit at home with him and they talk to him and they're working on things with him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these other children are probably just being at home. I don't know for sure, but they're not having the same interaction at home. So I can definitely tell the difference. And so um, as you're you're with these children, sometimes these children are at these places for a long, long time, you know, from opening until close. So you're with these children an awful lot. And some of them are really, really young. Um, so how? what about seeing some of the firsts? Like um, I know in one of your schools you saw one of the children take their first steps. Yeah, and that's always hard. I always 
I'm kind of like a mother figure to a lot of these kids because, like you said, they do come in. We open at 6.30 in the morning, so a lot of them are there at 6.30 on the dot. Mm-hmm. And then we close at 6.30, so a lot of them are there until close, and they're the same ones mm-hmm. that are there from open, you know, and then they're there to close. Mm-hmm. And so, in a way, we play kind of the mother figure. Mm-hmm. And like you were saying, I saw a child take his first steps, and it was kind of the hardest thing because I didn't know how I told his mother. I was like, do I tell him or her that, oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so took his first steps today because I know I would be devastated mm-hmm. as a parent if I missed that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, do I not tell because, you know, yeah. that's a huge thing. So, um, so what did you do was, in that situation? I kind of just said, you know, uh, he started standing up today. I think he's about to start walking and just to see what he w- she was going to say. And then eventually a couple days later she came back because he only came a couple days a week mm-hmm. and said, yeah, he's walking now. He started doing that, you know, that night once we got home after you had said that, he t- took a couple steps. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't a fact that I had to say, yeah, he took his first steps today. Because yeah. Yeah. I, I, myself, I would feel horrible. Like I felt horrible seeing that. Yeah. Even though it was really cool, like yeah, I, I yeah, would be, yeah. I would be devastated as a mother if I had missed like my child's first steps. Well, and I suppose it's the same as missing their first words that they read, or um, you know, even in, if you're in the infant room, missing their first words that they say. But, um, yeah. You know, when you when you're having some of these parents really, really have to do you know work as hard as they work, and um, thank goodness they have wonderful, wonderful teachers like you to hand their children over to because I know that you're mm-hmm. a very caring, very, very caring person. And I know that you've seen a difference, um, you know, in the socioeconomic um, situation where some of the children um, can read and some of them have really good, strong vocabularies because their parents have spoken to them um, a lot, um, you know, while they're at home. So. Yeah. And even from Dallas to here, I can tell a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. So it was just interesting, even though they're the same age. Yeah. It's and that's a hard thing to get across to parents too, is if they have older siblings, they'll say, Well, my older son did this at this age and he's not doing it yet. Why is that? And yeah. yeah. I kinda look at them and I gotta say, Not all kid not every kid is the same. Yeah. yeah. You know, something that he can do doesn't mean that he's gonna be able to do it and Well, you obviously love your job and I'm um, thank you so much for giving up part of your lunch to talk to me this afternoon (laughs) anytime Um, well my guest this week was paris mcnenny a graduated homeschooler top of her class and now a student herself in corpus christi she works as a teacher to keep a roof over her head food on her table and a car running among other responsibilities she talked to us about the different children she's had the pleasure of working with over the years and how life at home really does reflect a child's ability to speak and read well giving them an advantage or holding them back Thank you, Paris, so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Well, you're welcome. I hope you have an eventless rest of the day and a fantastic weekend. Well, thank you. In your new apartment that you moved in this weekend as well. (laughs) Yes, yes. Be safe and blessed. Talk to you again soon. Yes, looking forward to it. Bye. Bye. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. 
Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriend at principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. What an interesting conversation with my daughter, and I know she takes her job with the children really seriously as they grow very attached to her almost immediately. And after her comment about teaching two-year-olds, I thought I'd take a quick look into the history of organised schooling in England. In 19th century Britain, education for all was not supported by the higher classes because they didn't want to educate the working classes in case they became dissatisfied with their lot and the serving classes died out. To be fair, the working classes did not have any real interest in education either as families were unwilling to send their children to school instead of off to the factory floor, thus giving up an additional income. In 1807, Samuel Whitbread introduced the idea that children aged between 7 and 14 should have at least two years of basic education. His hope was to reduce crime and pauperism. It remained an idea until the Factory Act of the mid-1800s imposed certain restrictions on child labour and the number of hours children could work were reduced. Now the government saw that there had to be an alternative to having the children, who were no longer working all their waking hours, on the streets while their parents made ends meet. It was this succession of events that finally led to nationalised education in Britain, and the first Education Act of 1870 established elementary schools nationwide to teach children from the ages of 5 to 13. These non-denominational schools, run by boards and supported by public funds, supplemented the voluntary schools that were already in operation for those families who could afford them. Included in the wording of the Education Act were these instructions as to how the school day should begin, with collective worship on the part of all pupils in attendance. Once students reached the age of 18, there was only one way forward for most of them, work. Further education was only for those who could afford it, Eventually, the school leaving age in the UK rose to 16 when board examinations were sat, called O-levels. They're now known as GCSEs, or other groups of confusing acronyms. These did not have to be passed for exit from school, but they were needed for any further education that might be sought, vocational or technical. Eventually, schools also provided for college entrance examinations for students 17 to 18, who were clever enough to go on to university, where doors were opened for the first time to bright students without having to pay a fee. These became the A-levels of today. A standing for advanced, O standing for ordinary. 
There are about 36,500 state schools in Great Britain, providing an education to more than 90% of the students in the UK today. State schools are publicly funded and are required to follow a national curriculum. By law, all children between the age of 5 and 16 must receive a full-time education, while in Northern Ireland, children must begin at age 4. Children under 5 can attend publicly funded nurseries and preschools for a limited number of hours each week. After the age of 16, students can attend sixth form colleges or other further education institutions. In 1992, the UK introduced a national curriculum which state schools are required to adhere to until students reach reach age 16. Independent or private schools are not obliged to adhere to the national curriculum, but they can if they want to. The government is currently reviewing this curriculum, exploring ways to slim it down, and the revised curriculum is expected to be taught in schools from September 2013. Having the government involved in education is not an ideal situation. And I've had numerous discussions with lawyers and homeschool experts over the years who feel that government control over what everyone in the land should know or not know is not a healthy situation. Red flag in question right now is the desire of the present UK government to slim down the existing curriculum. How do they choose what to take out and what to leave in? Who's doing the choosing? Do parents have a choice? In Texas, the only required subjects to be taught in all schools are reading, spelling, grammar, math and good citizenship. Other American states vary in their requirements, but none are as rigorous as those that are mandatory subjects in the public funded schools in the UK. Are you ready? All 5 to 11-year-olds must learn English, maths, science, design and technology, information and communication technology, history, geography, art and design, music, physical education. And if that's not enough, schools also have to to teach religious education and are encouraged to to prove personal, social and health education and citizenship and at least one modern foreign language. That's a lot of subjects for a five-year-old. Well, it's really five to 11, but five. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? All 11 to 14-year-olds must learn the same English, math, science, design and technology, information and communication technology, history, geography. In here, they all have to learn a modern foreign language, art and design, music, citizenship, physical education. In addition to this, schools also have to provide sex and relationship education, religious education and careers education and guidance for those in their final year, which would be the 13 to 14 year olds. Whew, that's a lot. After age 14, students begin preparing for their GCSEs, national exams taken at 15, with classwork very much teaching to the tests. These are single subject examinations set and marked by independent examination boards. Students usually take up to 10. There's no upper or lower limit. GCSE examinations in different subjects, including mathematics and English language and all the other subjects they've had to take during their lifetime at school. After taking GCSEs, students may leave secondary schooling. They don't have to have passed these exams to leave. If they've done well in their exams, they may choose to continue their education at vocational or technical colleges. Those who stay at school follow a further two-year course of study and take A-levels, which are required for university entrance in the UK. The usual number of A-levels are three, and the student is highly specialised in the subjects he or she have chosen by this point. 
the best students in the best British schools do end up with a very advanced level of education in their chosen subjects, but they've been working towards that level of proficiency for several years and graduate from high school essentially ready for graduate school. 18-year-olds go on to medical school, law school, etc. Since university is simply a sharper end of the ever-narrowing but extremely deep and thorough educational road they've been travelling. Now that the government is currently reviewing the national curriculum and how to slim it down, the comments made by one of my guests last year, Deborah Bell, take on more weight. She's writing her thesis on homeschoolers today and, in essence, is hoping to attract the attention of the powers that be to prick up their ears and take note at what the homeschool community is doing in education circles to bring about so much success within their ranks, which we are. Obviously, on both sides of the Atlantic, schools are failing. In Britain, children are mandated to learn particular subjects in particular ways that may not suit their learning styles, while homeschoolers are free to follow subjects that interest them, as well as those required by their state, in ways that motivate them and pique their interest. My blue-eyed cowboy and I were talking about these possible solutions as we walked yesterday, and incentives for homeschoolers like tax breaks and credits. Since we're finishing our taxes, that came up, it would make a lot of sense and it would have no strings attached. I know I feel I wasn't financially recognised by the government for taking responsibility in homeschooling my own, or even for being a stay-at-home mum. If anything, homeschoolers are frowned upon for taking away income from the school's bottom lines. John Holt believed that schools took all the joy out of learning for children. He was right. Listen to my daughter. She believes in play, play and more play. For her young ones, not lesson plans and organised learning at desks. Hands-on experience and forays into entrepreneurialism is what we need more of in the schools. Actually, what we need more of are fewer schools, more parental involvement with less government interference. And my dancer daughter is doing quite well, let's get completely away from all that academia, in what are called her performance awards at her school an in-house competition that gives the students their chance to shine and show off what they've got in front of their peers, the college staff and faculty. On the first day, Malia got chosen for the finals on Friday, this, this Friday, in two categories, singing and acting, and those aren't even her strong point. Yesterday, she was chosen for ballet and contemporary. She was so excited and wants us to go and watch her. Oh, and she went to Zumba over the weekend and said it was so much fun she wants to teach it. Although she said it wore her out. Here's someone who dances all day, but not continuous movement like Zumba. She agreed it's a much more exciting way to build stamina than running round at the block. Much to my barbecue-loving cowboy husband chagrin, we usually don't cook that much during the week, content to eat fruit, yoghurt and salads, at least I speak for myself. He just eats contentedly, or not, joking about turning vegetarian or herbivore. As a result, we, or really he, enjoys cooking at the weekends. And this week he was obviously missing all things Texan because we had an American festival. On Friday we ate our own fish fish and roast potatoes with a special pan-fried red cabbage. Much more healthy than the greasy chip shop and I must say equally as tasty. Not so American, but the seasonings were chili-fied. Then we had chicken wings. Not for sale in England at the Sainsbury's we frequent. Instead we bought high-end nuggets and used a wing sauce my cowboy had found at an Epicurean delight called Partridge's near Sloan Square. We had frozen onion rings, which are really very good, up there with an awesome blossom, to accompany the wings, and a lovely rocket and herb leaf salad, which I'm partial to because you can just tip it out of the bag onto the plate, but which my better half compares to field greens, hot and bitter. 
Then he was creating enchiladas and we couldn't find any corn tortillas. We're on the verge of breaking down to make them from scratch when I noticed old El Paso on the Waitrose shelf. We'd abandoned good old Sainsbury's as too conservative. And there, in a box, on the shelf, was an enchilada kit. Luckily, we provided our own meat. He made eight chicken enchiladas, which were to die for, a creamy, cheesy sauce for the top, and the Mexican rice, courtesy of our old friend Uncle Ben, all ready to heat up in its bag in the microwave. We froze the leftovers for our daughter, who will be home from college next week. Her dad told her to bring an appetite, which she always does. Yummy. Well, we've started making tentative plans for moving back, but I really don't want to think too much about it, since we still have several more months to go, which I want to enjoy. doesn't look as if we'll be able to bring our furniture, though. The freighting costs are prohibitive. I don't mind letting things go. I've done it before. But it would be nice to reconstruct the peaceful surroundings we come to enjoy in our rooms at home. But then it's not what's in the surroundings, it's the attitude of those who are in it. And I think there are baby birds in the tree outside my office window. I can hear a constant chatter going on to the point of destruction. No, distraction. Destruction of my computer against the window. I went outside this morning to investigate. Well, it wasn't coming from the trees outside, but from the trees across the way. Their evergreens so could hide a flock of noisy birds. Everything's sprouting and looking so fresh. I don't remember having seen so many daffodils before. They brighten up many a dull field. I hear there have been heavy rainstorms in Dallas. My zookeeper son had to go to the zoo early one morning to rescue the caged birds from the bird show. Quite a deluge, I take it. And I have gnashed myself almost voiceless and out of time. And this weekend sees the beginning of Holy Week, which has some heavy stuff going on at our church, especially on Good Friday. I'll tell you all about it, I'm sure. My brother has asked if I can help with the boys over the Easter break, but I'm way too busy. I'll be here, same time, same place next week. So without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight. Our four children, who are the result of that belief. I miss you three in Texas. The hard-working staff at Toginet Radio. My guest, Paris McNenny. Thank you. And you, my faithful listeners, especially Anne and Lindell. Hannah, Tina, Rosemary, Pam, Charlotte, and many others who are part of my growing audience. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNenny on Toginat. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who were willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So, we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNenny. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com.